Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number three on the War of the Jewels, volume number 11 of the history of Middle-earth. So we've been looking uh, uh, recently at the, we're, we're still reading the Great Annals, which we'll still be doing for a little time because there's quite a lot of them here at the beginning. Um, and tonight we're going to be looking at, we're going to be asking the question, which I don't think is exactly an answerable question. But I want to look at the evidence that we get from primary text, as well as from a few of Christopher's comments, um, and see what we can learn uh, from the text as far as answering the question, which is a question I don't feel like I've ever really fully understood, which is, what are we reading? Like, what exactly is going on uh, here in Tolkien's mind? Like, as he's... You know, it's part of the question, because I don't feel that I perfectly understand what he wanted the published Silmarillion to look like. Like, if he had published the Silmarillion now, like if the um, if he'd gotten the green light, you know, which I don't know if it would have been awesome or a disaster. One of the two, it feels like very likely. Um, but if he'd gotten the thumbs up. And the whole mess could have come out at the same time. Lord of the Rings plus Silmarillion, you know, all in a big red leather case. Um, if he could have done that, what exactly would it have looked like? What was the role of the Annals and particularly the re relationship between the Annals and the Quinta? Um, Christopher Tolkien, of course, ends up combining them, right? He, he takes, um, you know, what he publishes as the Quinta Silmarillion contains, as you can see, right, reading through the Grey Annals here together as we are, vast quantities of uh, prose straight out of the Annals, just as we saw with the Annals of Amon. I think it's even more striking with the Grey Annals than it was in the uh, with the Annals of Amon. But it's very clear that um, a lot of the text, which is presented as the Quintus Silmarillion, was, clear the, was clearly the Annals. Is this a question of sort of the Quinta as a form, right? The whole, um, you know, that sort of plot summary genre being supplanted, like him him deciding, no, 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 I'm going to present this, that material as annals, or was he actually planning to present both? Like, here's the Quintus Silmarillion, and then here are the annals of Amon, and then the gray annals, or the annals of Beleriand. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I'm not really sure. In 1937, it would seem that he was planning to do both. That is, he revised the Quintus Silmarillion in 1937, like when he was prepping for publication, and he revised the Annals, right? That's when we got the those those other drafts of the Annals of Amon and the Annals of Beleriand um, from earlier on. So it seems that he was doing both. Which, but anyway, how is that going on, right? Here in the early 50s, which is still sort of where we are chronologically, um, as he's finished writing but has not yet published The Lord of the Rings, um, what are we getting? What are we seeing uh, from the annals? So that's my, um, that's my basic question. So, Jocelyn, yeah, let me, let me explain briefly um, when I'm talking about the Quintus Silmarillion. So 
because it's confusing when what we know as the Quintus Silmarillion, right? In the published Silmarillion, we have the Anuindale separately, the Valaquenta separately, and then at the end, right, of course, we get the Akalabeth separately and of the Rings of Power in the Third Age separately, and then there's the big fat middle section, which is like, you know, 70% of the book or something, um, which is called the Quintus Silmarillion. And that, of course, is the main thing that every, you know, when you, when you just when you say like, oh, I love the Silmarillion story, that's what that's what most people are thinking of, right? Is the Quinta, which is again, it's the the main body, what feels like the main body of the Silmarillion text, though it's really like part three of five, though it's by far the hugest part um, of the five parts. And so Christopher has named it that, the Quinta Silmarillion, like he's taken the name from what Tolkien wrote. So if you remember um a couple of weeks ago in our in you know the ver- our, our first class when I was talking about the our first session here for War of the Jewels when I was doing my little refresher summary of the history of Tolkien's writing the Silmarillion you remember that I was talking about when he first started to do the plot summary thing right when he when he first wrote out that um um you know that 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 summary of the mythology um for his friend to contextualize his friend's reading uh, the alliterative Children of Hurin. Um, and then he expands that. Um, and so between 1928 and 1930 is about the time that that's happening. And what he titles that work when he first takes this plot summary thing and he's fleshed it out and he's developed it a little bit more, he titles it the Quenta Noldorinwa. And then he retitles it. He when he when he takes the Quentin Olderinwa, which he writes in about 1930, and he um, uh, revises it in 1937 again in that rush of preparation for hoping that the publisher who loved the Hobbit so much is going to take the Silmarillion now. Um, when he's revising it, there he retitles it. He changes the title from the Quentin Olderinwa um, to the Quentin Silmarillion. And I think the idea there, my suspicion and my basic understanding of why he changes it from the Quenta Noldorinwa to the Quenta Silmarillion is that he knows that he's including not just, it's not just the story of the Noldor, it's the story of the, you know, of like the entire drama of, you know, the first age there and the wars in Beleriand. And so, um, which, you know, he sort of takes the Silmarils as the the kind of centerpiece of, right? So it's it's the story of the jewels, right? It's the story of the Quintus of, of the Silmarils. Which includes mostly Noldoran material, but of course some Cinder material also, like the Children of Hurin is in there, right? Which as we've talked about is very human. Um so uh, I think it was because it was like it, he was shifting away a little bit from just kind of thinking of it in terms of like the Noldor frame. This is not just the account of the Noldor, it's the account of the whole business, um, which he names after the Silmarillion, after the Silmarils. So, um, so that's the, well, that's what I mean by the Quintus Silmarillion, that um, plot summary mode that he gets into. Now, again, what we know as the Quintus Silmarillion in the published Silmarillion is a combination. It's not just what Tolkien wrote and titled The Quintus Silmarillion. Christopher has taken that material, 
the Quintus Silmarillion material that Tolkien developed and revised, and he's combined it with material from the Annals, the Annals of Amon and the Annals of Beleriand. You know, before the Noldor left Valinor, and then after they arrive in Middle-earth. Um, so that's the history of like what we know of as the Quint like the, where the Quintus Silmarillion in the, in in the published Silmarillion comes from. But I'm not talking about the published Silmarillion, which is Christopher's product, right? I'm talking about in Tolkien's mind, he keeps writing these annals. He's not yet doing what Christopher did, which is say like, okay, let's take this material from the this Quinta material, and let's take this animal material and let's just merge it all into one unified story. Tolkien does not yet seem to be doing that. And so I guess in one sense, he's obviously like, as we're reading the gray annals, he's clearly not abandoning the annals. He's expanding those. Um, and the very fact that we are reading more and more and more of the, I mean, such a large percentage of what we have been reading in the gray annals is the text that Christopher Tolkien chose to base the published Silmarillion on, which means that Christopher Tolkien, for you know, long, long stretches of the history of Beleriand, when Christopher Tolkien was making the decision, what is the latest and most definitive version of the story, the most definitive, by which I mean the most completely written version of the story um, that there is. And as we're seeing for large swaths of the published Silmarillion, the answer is the annals, right? That's why so much of this stuff is familiar. Um, but um, so um, that's... Uh, he's, he's not leaving the annals behind. He's developing the annals. So in one sense, I think... My question is as simple as, was he leaning towards, is this a sign, the gray annals that we're reading, is this a sign that he's going to be moving away from the idea of the Quintus? Is the Quintus Silmarillion coming to be replaced entirely by the annals? And he's just decided that this, this kind of, um, you know, year... Not year by year, because it's not like they, there's an entry for every single year, but, um, you know, this sort of date-oriented structure in the annals, this is what he's going to go with from now on, right? This is the, this is, this is the plan. This is plan A um, from now on. Or does he still, in his mind, think of the annals and the Quenta as supplementary texts? Again, does the dream Silmarillion that he wants HarperCollins or Alan and Unwin to publish with bound with the Silmarillion like the Red Book of Westmarch or bound with the Lord of the Rings like the West the Red Book of Westmarch um, does that dream Silmarillion of his in 1951 um, does that include both does it include both the Annals of Amon and Beleriand and also the Quento and if so what's the relationship between them exactly or is it just like and now the same thing except with dates right I mean I Presumably not, right? Um, but um, uh, anyway, uh, so w this, as I say, it's not the question I'm answering right now. It's the question I'm asking. Uh, this, is, this is a very, very long preamble. Has turned into a long preamble. Um, uh, this is 
the main question that I was becoming interested in the further we were reading along in the Grey Annals, because, of course, the reorientation to the Sindarin material, the Sindar material that we were looking at last time, um, we still have a, a little bit more of that to look at tonight. Um, but the main, the main thing about that, the main thing we were emphasizing last, emphasizing last time, was the, the this really eye-opening effect of the context, right? Of recontextualizing that material in the first-hand writings of the Sindar themselves, like the, even like the mythology of the Sindar themselves. Um, but as we're going to see, that's going to kind of tail off as we move forward. And so this is why as we continued reading, and I don't know that we're going to get all the way up to the beginning of the Turin story as I asked you to read for next time, but we'll see how close we get. Um, but anyway, as I was reading through, um, uh, that stuff in preparation for class tonight, I was really struck by the, this. This is the question that I found myself asking more and more. Um, what is what does he think he's doing? <laughs> what does he think? Because he kind of leaves the whole Grey Annals thing, the whole Sindar frame behind um, fairly substantially, I think. Um, and so in the absence of that, now what? Right? Now what? Um, so that we will see. We will talk about tonight. Um, before I do, just a, 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 a couple really quick things. I forgot to do my announcements. I got swept up away in asking my questions. Um, just a couple really quick things. First, a reminder, we've got a couple regional moots coming up. Sunshine Moot in Orlando is coming up very soon on the 17th of March. So just a few weeks from now, be down in Orlando. Looking forward to that. Uh, you can still join us live in person if you're anywhere near uh, Central Florida. Or you can uh, join us remotely, of course. And then after that, we'll be in San Antonio for TexMoot on the 15th of April. And we are looking towards, we are nearly confirmed uh, for Maple Moot in May, going to Canada for the first time. Um, so anyway, that is, uh, those are the moots that are coming up soon. Uh, and two things I wanted to emphasize from the press. First, of course, I've mentioned before, but feel like I should mention again. Um, my book is now being released, my new Exploring the Lord of the Rings Volume 1 book, in which I talk about Book 1 from uh, the beginning of the, from the prologue through the flight to the Ford. Um, that book is now uh, in the process of serial release. So my first chapter um, was released last week. And uh, that is uh, going to be continuing. My second chapter, uh, which is uh, my second chapter, is still covering the prologue, um, in which my second chapter I'm going to be talking about looking at the pattern of how he introduces us to hobbits. Like, what exactly does he, how does he tell us about hobbits in the concerning hobbits section, the pipeweed section, uh, and even later? Um, what things do we learn? What, what does he feel like we need, what does he feel like we need to know about hobbits? And what does that tell us? How do we see ourselves as audience being set up? And how do we see the story being set up? So those are the things that I'm going to be discussing in my second chapter, which will uh, be released in just a couple weeks. So I, I would love for you to join me on this, um, uh, this really fun journey of uh, writing my way through The Lord of the Rings and producing what is going to be uh, a very large uh, set of books, I think, at the end of the day. I, I suspect that all six volumes of my Exploring the Lord of the Rings books are going to be a fairly hefty collection by the end, um, uh, which is cool. 
Uh, I'm really uh, excited about that. So anyway, you can join me for that. The subscription is really inexpensive. Uh, For two bucks a month, you can join me uh, in my journey and get the chapters as they're being written and released every month um, for the next couple years as I continue the process of writing this book. So that is... um, uh, that has been really exciting. But here's another really exciting thing. Um, oh, uh, JJ is asking, will it be strictly digital or will it be possible to purchase a hard copy? Yes, it will be. Uh, you will be able to purchase a hard copy when it's all done, though. I mean, we're not going to publish, like, chapter by chapter. Um, uh, so, yes, it's it's just available in... Basically, when you subscribe, you'll be getting, like, a you know PDF of each chapter every month, or you'll be getting the audio book file. I, I'm doing audio as well, so you can get it in audio or you can get it in ebook form. Um, so I am narrating the audio every month uh, for the monthly releases. So those, they're just, I mean, it's like a work in progress thing, right? I'm going to be probably doing some more revision and stuff. Even the text itself won't be totally finalized because I'm still getting feedback and input and we're going to see where things go, right? I might, uh, I might, who knows, change my mind about some things later on. Um, but in any case, um, we're going to be um uh we're going to be talking um uh, yeah so when i finish you know when when the when when the book is done which will be in a few years because I, I, at this point i'm averaging about 3 chapters of mine per chapter of the book uh so in a few years when this book is totally finished then yes we'll be publishing it in uh it, it'll be like a print on demand if you want it in paper uh, on on actual paper, so um, yeah, exactly. So yes, someday that will in fact happen. Um, but um, yeah, so um, okay. But oh, wait, hang on. There's one last quick thing um, that I wanted to mention because in addition, um, in addition to <laughs> so, Matt, who is uh, the official exploring the Lord of the Rings statistician is pointing out that I'm stating an average based on one chapter. Matt, I am stating an average based on two chapters, <laughs> which, considering that that's functionally two out of 12, is a not insignificant sample size. So we'll see. After chapter two, I'll really have a handle on it, because chapter two, of course, is the shadow of the past. Uh, so if I if I get, you know three or even four chapters in, in that, then I think I'll be very confident, you know, about uh, number of chapters per chapter. Um, but um, in any case, but, but, but here's the thing I was going to transition to just briefly, because speaking about things that I'm excited about. Um, so we just began um, release of another new thing that we're doing, uh, another new work that we're publishing with the press. And this is really, really exciting. Um, Michael Drought. Many of you know Michael Drought. He's, uh, you know, uh, you know, one of the, has been one of the, uh, you know, uh, sort of most, uh, uh, most recognized, uh, 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 just, you know, one of the most important figures in Tolkien studies for decades now. And of course, also very, um, doing a, a great deal of work, both in uh, in Old English studies and, you know, with Beowulf studies um, and in digital text stuff, um, is publishing Exploring Beowulf. So what he's doing is he's going through the Beowulf poem 
and he's he's reading the old English and then he's translating the old English and then he's annotating both like linguistically and literarily annotating basically what he's doing is he is putting together his entire career studying Beowulf and he is presenting um, everything like everything that he knows about Beowulf which is a lot um, in order like line by line through the entire poem it is such a cool project um, and so that also is being uh, released he's actually recording like weekly uh, supplements we're releasing it once a month but um, it's hard keeping up with him uh, so Anyway, I, I wanted to draw your attention. So that's Exploring Beowulf. Um, how you can find either my book or um, uh, Mike Drought's Exploring Beowulf book, and we have others too, but um, that was the other one that I really wanted to bring to your attention here tonight. Um, anyway, so uh, you can subscribe to that too, so you'll get monthly. Uh, so you can, again, get... Um, uh, that one's, I think, audio only, because he, he's he's doing them as like a series of like... Uh, it's sort of like a podcast, sort of like mini lectures. He's doing... A, um, it's hard to say what they are. They're not classroom lectures. They're not, um, uh, you know, they're not like book chapters. It's audio discussion as he's going through. Um, but uh, anyway, so you can get those again. Uh, uh, you can subscribe monthly to those. Go either to press.signumuniversity.org and then you can look up me or Mike Jot or any of our other authors, um, Serena's book or uh, Kay's wonderful book, all kinds of stuff there. Um, or uh, you can go straight to BlackBerry, blackberry.signumuniversity.org, um, and you can go to the Signum Press area, and you can go in, and that's where you, um, that's where you actually eventually be directed to make your subscription. Um, so you can subscribe to my book. You can subscribe to Exploring Beowulf. Really, really cool stuff going on there. So um, just wanted to uh, uh, draw, your, uh, draw your attention to that. Um, okay, let's get back to our discussion of the annals and try to figure out what on earth Tolkien is doing. So, um, I love this passage. I, this of course is one of those passages that is in the, um, uh, published Silmarillion as well. So it'll be familiar to you, but again, this is one of those where we're getting the context, uh, from we're, we're still in the Sindar focused context here of the long years of peace that followed after the coming of Denethor. There is little tale, for though in this time Dairon the Minstrel, it is said, who is the chief loremaster of the kingdom of Thingol, devised his runes, added later in margin, Kirth, they were little used by the Sindar for the keeping of records, until the days of the war, and much that was held in memory has perished in the ruin of Doriath. Yet verily of bliss and glad life there is little to be said, ere it endeth. As works fair and wonderful, while still they endure for eyes to see, are their own record, and only when they are in peril or broken forever do they pass into song. In Beleriand in those days the elves walked, and the rivers flowed, and the stars shone, and the night flowers gave forth their scents, and the beauty of Melian was as the noon, and the beauty of Luthien was as the dawn in spring. In Beleriand, King Thingol upon his throne was as the sons of the Valar, whose power is at rest, whose joy is as an air that they breathe in all their days, whose thought flows in a tide untroubled from the heights to the deeps. In Beleriand, still at whiles, rode Orome the Great, passing like a wind over the mountains, and the sound of his horn came down the leagues of the starlight, and the elves feared him, 
for the splendor of his countenance and the great noise of the onrush of Nahar. But when the Valaroma echoed in the hills, they knew well that all evil things were fled far away. Okay, so again, thinking about this in the context of sort of Sindar mythology and Sindar world building, notice that here we get, on the one hand, a very beautiful... I was about to say depiction of, but it's not quite a depiction, is it? It's, um, I don't know, it's like a suggestion of? like we, um, It's like how to describe something without describing it. Um, you know, he starts off by saying, Verily of bliss and glad life there is little to be said, at the beginning of a very, very long sentence indeed, in which he's saying little. about. It, it, it apparently takes a pretty long sentence to say little about bliss and glad life in this case, right? Um, it's, it's, it's a really fun uh, segue into the sentence in that way. You know, he's just explained how they don't keep many written records, even though, you know, footnote, Dairon the Minstrel invented his runes at this time, Cinder didn't use them much. Um, so we get this glimpse of the innocence of the Sindar, of this time of bliss and glad knife, of glad life, of the works fair and wonderful. Um, and that next sentence in Beleriand, in those days, the elves walked, the rivers flowed, the stars shone. Uh, um, isn't that a fun set of things? The rivers flow. It's, it's just what they do. The stars shine. It's just what they do. The elves walked. That's apparently what elves do. This image of elves just walking around. Beleriand. That's, um, that's what happened. That's, um, that's the, that's the current events in Beleriand at this point in history. The night flowers gave forth, gave forth their scents. Yeah, yeah. So just as uh, elf walking, I guess, is also sort of, um, sort of like that. Um, remember also that one of the things that we were noticing, and of course we get this in the framework uh, of, you know, the mythology of the Sindar, so there's a little bit of preferential treatment here, perhaps. But, as I said last time, if it is correct and not indeed uh, a an accusation spoken with the tongue of Melkor um, that the Valar erred in inviting the Eldar across the sea to Valinor, and they should have been left in Middle-earth. Potentially, at least, the Sindar alone have some kind of a first-hand sense for how things might have been, for how things should have been. Yeah, Torlonio, just exactly as you were saying there, how things might have been in Middle-earth. Exactly. Um, that this would seem to be a sort of glimpse of it. And the beauty of Melian was as the noon. She is the noontime sun of the entire continent. Um, very much in that sort of, you know, the... the um, She's the genius loci of all of Beleriand, right? She is, she is the goddess of the continent. And the beauty of Luthien was as the dawn in spring, right? This beautiful fruit, this beautiful combination of the Valar coming and blessing the, you know, uh, Valinor coming and blessing the land and the Eldar walking in the land and the two of them joining together in this hallowed 
uh, marriage of Melian and King Thingol, High King Thingol, as he's even called at times here, and then Luthien, the most beautiful of all of the, you know, the be- most beautiful of all the children of Iluvatar, who is the, you know, the 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 expression of that union, like a like the dawn in spring, and this description of Thingol is really stunning. I mean, it's really stunning. In Beleriand, King Thingol, upon his throne, was as the sons of the Valar. And yet, great question, Marianne. Um, is he reverting to the idea that the Valar had offspring? That was part of the original conception back in the Book of Lost Tales. The Valar used to have... They're, 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 they have marriages. They never stop being married, right, to each other. That's a part of the mythology all the way through. You know, Manwe and Varda, Aule and, and Yavanna, etc. Um, but they originally had kids. Orome was the son of Yavanna, for instance, right? Um, uh, Fionwe, who later is called Aonwe, the herald of Manwe, was the son of Manwe in the original. Um, uh, Gothmog, I'm pretty sure, if I'm remembering my Book of Lost Tales correctly, was the son of Morgoth. Um, it's the son of Melko. So, anyway, um, Marianne, I don't know. I I kind of doubt it. I don't think he's reasserting that. Like, actually, the Valar do sometimes have kids. Notice, I think, that he is saying, oh, Emily, I'm forgetting who the wife of Melkor was. I don't think it was Ungoliant. Somebody shady, though. Um, uh, <laughs> JJ, I'm going to pretend that I intended the pun when I called it the original conception. But um, anyway, so Marianne, I think that what is happening there, um, he's not reasserting the um, uh, procreation of the Valar. He, it's a it's a simile. In Balerion, King Thingol upon his throne was as the sons of the Valar. I don't think that it means exactly... So, there were sons of the Valar, and he was just like them. That's one way that we could read that passage, but I don't think that we need to read it that way. I think it's more... He is as the sons of the Valar, like he is... He is, um... I don't know, like a son of the Valar would be. He's not... He isn't one of the Valar, but he he is like an offspring of the, of the Valar. Um whose power is at rest, whose joy is as an air that they breathe in all their days, um, whose thought flows in a tide untroubled from the heights to the deeps. This paragraph is a really crucial corrective. If we are inclined, as many readers do seem to be inclined, and I will not... Uh, pretend that I have not myself been guilty of this on occasions. Um, many readers are inclined, when they think of Thingol, they primarily think of of his mm, mistakes, right? They think of Thingol, the husband who doesn't listen to his wife, uh, despite the fact that you'd think he would, right? Um you might think of Thingol as the, you know, overprotective father 
who first tries to get her loser boyfriend killed and then throws his daughter into prison for her own good. Right. Um, you know, you, um, uh, yeah. So, um, you might, you might think of the Thingol who is sort of, you might have a picture of Thingol, the isolationist king, sort of sitting in the middle of Doriath, you know, with his arms folded crossly, um, staring about himself in annoyance, uh, not letting anybody else in and not being a team player, right? Um, while the rest of Balerion burns around him. Like, you might have negative... In short, you might have a whole bunch of negative associations about King Thingol, and that might be the very first thing that comes to your mind um, when somebody says Thingol's name. Um, in this paragraph, as he is writing this quasi-historical, quasi-mythological account of the Sindar, Tolkien is asking us, he's inviting us to imaginatively enter a very different space where we see Thingol as this semi-divine creature. And that's not just a metaphor. It's not just a simile. Again, it's, he's not like the Valar themselves. He's like, as it were, an offspring of the Valar. He's like the next best thing to the Valar. He is similar to the Valar. He's parallel to the Valar. He's not actually a Valar, right? Um, but he's pretty, he's pretty close. Um, and his relationship to the people, it's not like he is not first among equals or anything, right? Um, he has been elevated by his marriage to Melian. Remember when he emerged from Nan Elmoth with his new goddess bride, he wasn't even recognizable. He had experienced a kind of apotheosis. And we see the impact of that ap apotheosis here. Whose power is at rest. Love that. Love that. Right? Whose power is at rest. Like, infusing the whole realm. Right? Not just at rest in the sense of, like, not doing anything. Whose power is at rest. Like, he is... He is established. He is enthroned, not just politically, in Doriath, in the heart of Beleriand. Um, but his power rests upon Doriath and reaches through all of Beleriand, whose joy is as an air that they breathe all their days. The joy of Thingol is breathed. They're breathing in his joy. Right? The, the, the delight that the Eldar, the elves walking in Beleriand, the delight that they have in, in, in the land, it's like they're breathing that in, transmitted through Thingol himself. Whose thought flows in a tide untroubled from the heights to the deeps. Wow. Right? That is very, very close to the divine. Um... I mean, that sounds a lot like the, um, that sounds a lot like the description of the Valar that we get in the Valaquenta, isn't it? Yes, Mrs. Manrique, uh, you are absolutely correct that, um, kings and divinity rest on a throne. Rest is often authoritative. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, to, um, uh, yeah, that's his, 
his power, his authority rests upon, his thought, his uh, influence rests upon uh, Beleriand. It's not just take, it's not taking a break. That is not what he's talking about when he talks about whose power is at rest. Um, yes, yes. Um, but now notice what happens at the end of this paragraph. It's a curious thing. We segue to Orome, the Great, one of the only Valar who still makes regular visits uh, to Middle-earth and therefore to Beleriand. On the one hand, so you've got semi-divine King Thingol, whose power is at rest in Beleriand, and then you've got Orome the Great passing through. And when he comes through, whoo, the splendor of his countenance and the great noise of the onrush of Nahar, you know, the ringing of Valaroma in the hills of the, you know, the, the Valaroma, his horn. Um, it is so awe-inspiring that it's kind of scary, right? So on the one hand, Orome is an interesting sort of piece of context. I mean, the end of this paragraph, it's, it's like we get, um, we get this long description of Thingol, first of the bliss of the elves, and then rooting the bliss of the elves in Thingol and his godlike influence. So it's like, the paragraph is like, and Thingol was like a god. Footnote. But he's not, actually. Right. There were other Valar around, and when the other Valar are around, they're way more impressive than Thingol, actually. Right? Like, not even the Sindar are under any illusions that Thingol and Orome are peers. When Orome passes through, he's scary. Right? Even those who are breathing in the joy of Thingol in all of their days still get a little nervous <laughs> when Orome rides through. Right? Reassured, because they know well that all evil things were fled far away. They don't distrust him, Orome. Right? But it sh- it sh- it's his, his presence is a little reminder to us, but also presumably um, to, uh, uh, to the Sindar themselves, that Thingol isn't, he's not actually one of the Valar, right? Um, and, of course, in addition to the reminder that Orome gives, right, um, don't forget, there are actually even more impressive beings um, over in Valinor, um, but also a reminder of the encroaching evil. An encroaching evil which does not flee quite so far away from Thingol as it flees from Orome, does it? Right? Um, Orome's, sorry, Thingol's power may be at rest in Beleriand, but the boundaries of the peaceful realm of Beleriand are already shrinking. This is after the passage we discussed at the end of our discussion, our, 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 our discussion last time um, about the making of weapons, right, and the, the coming of evil creatures, the invasion of evil creatures into uh, Beleriand itself. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, JJ, I think it's supposed to sound like that. JJ says it sounds, the reaction to Orome sounds somewhat like whenever an angel shows up uh, in the Bible. Um, and the first thing the angel always has to do to the human beings to whom they appear in the Bible is to say, 
don't be afraid, right? Fear not is the first thing angels always say because fear is the natural reaction to great spiritual beings. Yes, I think that both that is the kind of fear we're talking about and the kind of effect that he's sort of going for. And again, the sort of reminder, uh, kind of contextualization of the quasi-divinity of uh, of Thingol. He's still quasi-divine, but only uh, quasi, right? Um, not uh, quite as terrifying. Um, thank you, Maureen, for looking that up for me. The Ogress uh, Fluithuin. Yes, the Ogress Fluithuin, the wife of Melko, um, who begets Gothmog for him. Um, so there you are. Uh, thanks. Thanks for looking that up. I was pretty sure it wasn't so anybody that we knew. Um, yeah, yeah. She was just invented to bear the kid. Um, I don't recall her ever having any other um, role. Though it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that she was an ogress? Because ogres, as a concept, get kind of pushed out of the rest of um, Tolkien's world. Uh, but anyway, that is a sideline I'm not going to go down. Um, okay. Let's keep going. No. Yeah, let's keep going. Okay. Then Fanor shows up. Tidings of these great deeds came to Menegroth and to Eglarest, and the Grey Elves were filled with wonder and with hope, for they looked to have great help in their defense against Morgoth from their mighty kindred that thus returned unlooked for from the West in their very hour of need, believing indeed at first that they came as emissaries of the Valar to, to deliver their brethren from evil. The great deeds, of course, are the landing of the Feanorians and the first battles in the north between the Feanorians and Morgoth and the death of Feanor, right? Um, now, the Grey Elves were of Telerian race, and Thingol was the brother of Olwe at Alqualonde, but not yet was known of the kinslaying, nor of the manner of the exile of the Noldor, and of the Oath of Feanor. Yet, though they had not heard of the curse of Mandos, it was soon at work in Beleriand. For it entered into the heart of King Thingol to regret the days of peace when he was the high lord of all the land and its peoples. Wide were the countries of Beleriand, and many empty and wild, and yet he welcomed not with full heart the coming of so many princes in might out of the west, eager for new realms. Let's pause there for a second. We'll read the next paragraph, too. But um, again, this is still part of that. We're thinking about this from the Sindar perspective. Again, a familiar, you know, this is a, a familiar passage uh, from the published Silmarillion, but um, that line, he welcomed not with full heart the coming of so many princes in might out of the West, eager for new realms. Um, and the reference to, though they had not heard of the curse of Mandos, it was soon at work in Beleriand, for it entered into the heart of King Thingol to regret the days of peace. So, what do we see here? How does, as part of the gray annals, right, as, par, as part of the lore of the Sindar, what are we seeing here? I don't know about you, but when in the published Silmarillion, I read that sentence about it entering in the heart of King Old King Thigol to regret the days of peace um, and he welcomed not with full heart the coming of so many princes in might out of the West. Right? That's in the published Silmarillion. When I read it in the published Silmarillion, 
I'm immediately thinking of, you know, the dude who's going to try to get Baron killed and lock up his daughter and ignore his wife. Right. I mean, like that, that, that thingle, um, the, uh, well, I don't want to say villain. That's a little harsh on thingle, but, um, but certainly the um, non-admirable, not fully admirable character uh, in these later stories. This begins to sound like him already, right? Oh, look at this. Here's Thingol already being petty, right? I mean, they, they've got their, the wonder and hope has passed away pretty quickly. Um, and the, they seem to be pretty ungrateful uh, to their mighty kindred who have thus returned unlooked for from the West in their very hour of need, right? Um Again, in the context, in the more strongly Noldor-biased context of the published Quintus Silmarillion, that feels a little ungenerous, a little, um, uh, you know, ungrateful, even, of, um, of Thingol. But now, in the context of the Grey Annals, in the context of this Sindar world, it feels different in a couple different ways. Notice the transition. Though they had not heard of the Curse of Mandos, it was soon at work in Beleriand, for it entered into the heart of King Thingol to regret the days of... Why does Thingol uh, regret the days of peace when he was the High Lord of all the land and its peoples? Why, despite the fact that the countries of Beleriand are wide and many of them empty and wild, why, nevertheless, does he not with a full heart welcome the Feanorians? Because the curse of Mandos is at work in Beleriand. What does the curse of Mandos say? What did he say to the Noldor? We got that in the Annals of Amon, so in theory, when we get to the Grey Annals, we're supposed to know, we're supposed to remember, right? It said that it was going to, like, they were going, they were going to be cursed, with division, right, and the turning of hearts against one another, right, and distrust and betrayal. And Thingol, King Thingol, quasi-divine King Thingol that we were just reading about, how much time has passed since that other entry? 150 years, a mere nothing. Um, he... His heart is stirred against them. He knows nothing. He doesn't know about the kinslaying. He doesn't know about the exile of the Noldor. He doesn't know about the oath of Theanor. He does not know about the curse of Mandos. He knows none of these things. Without any of that information, yet his heart forebodes that peace, the days of peace of Beleriand are now gone, now that the Theanorians have come. And he's not wrong. He's not wrong. Remember those days of peace that we just were singing the praises of in the previous passage, right? Um, those days of peace are gone. They're, in a sense, they're already gone. The orcs have been invading. Things have been rough, right? Um, but notice this is in the context of their mighty kindred that thus returned unlooked for from the West in their very hour of need, right? Yeah, they rescued them from the orcs. So, everything's good now. Peace is returned. Hooray! 
now we can go back to the days of peace that were, right? Because the orcs have been driven off. No, we can't go back to the days of peace. Thingol's heart, King Thingol's heart tells him that um, the days of peace are only to be regretted, are to be looked back upon and wished for because so many princes have come in might out of the West, eager for new realms. He can foresee this is going to cause trouble. There are going to be problems. It is like He's never heard of the kinslaying, but the shadow of the future kinslaying, right? The, sh the shadow of the ruin of Doriath is falling upon his heart because the curse of Mandos is at work. He doesn't know anything about it, but he can feel it like you would if you were the kind of quasi-divine king that we were reading about in the previous section. In context now, in the new Grey Annals context, this passage does not feel like, oh, there's Thingol starting off being petty from day one. Petty and ungrateful. It's tempting to read it that way in the published Silmarillion. In this context, he sounds merely wise. He's not wrong, for sure. Definitely not wrong. It's going to be the Feanorians themselves who are going to slay the people invade Doriath and slay the people of Doriath like they slew the people of all the way at Alqualande. They know he knows nothing about the kinslaying, but kinslaying is coming to him from these people. The oath, he knows nothing of the oath of Feanor, but it is going to drive these Feanorians to destroy his realm and lay in waste the bliss of his people that was just described. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. And again, there, there's, if we, instead of starting from the framework of Thingol's a bit of an idiot who never listens to his wife, if instead of starting from that standpoint, we're starting from the full Sindar mythology standpoint, view of Thingol that we've been getting, then even wide were the countries of Beleriand and many empty and wild. Like, it would seem like he should welcome these people, but the fact that he doesn't, despite that fact, despite the fact that they're going to set up their leaguer, despite the fact this this should warn us, right? This should be ominous foreshadowing for us Sindar readers, right? Because Thingol, in his wisdom, has a sense of what is to come. Um. Yeah. Um. Moving on to the next paragraph now. Thus, there was from the first a coolness between him and the sons of Feanor, whereas the closest friendship was needed if Morgoth were to be withstood. For the house changed to, for the sons of Feanor were ever unwilling to accept the overlordship of Thingol, and would ask for no leave where they might dwell or might pass. When, therefore, ere long, by treachery and ill will, as later is told, the full tale of the deeds in Valinor became known in Beleriand, there was rather enmity than alliance between Doriath and the house of Feanor, and this bitterness Morgoth eagerly inflamed by all means that he could find. But that evil lay as yet in the days to come, and the first meeting of the Sindar and the Noldor was eager and glad, 
though parley was at first not easy between them, for in their long severance the tongue of the Calaquendian Valinor and the Moraquendian Beleriand had drawn far apart, concerning which more soon. Now, um, notice the emphasis here. Um, we foretell the uh, enmity that is going to be between Doriath and the House of Fanor. But it begins with a coolness from the beginning. Or rather, again, we get a, a sort of division, right? The very first, like when the Sindar themselves, like the Sindar on the ground, the ones who live up in Hithlam, for instance, right? The one because we know that there are sin, there are Sindar who live up in the you know the lands of Hithlum and Dorlom, like the like around Lake Mithrim, where the Fanorians arrive and defeat the orcs. The locals pretty happy with this turn of events, right? They're fairly impressed with the Fanorians and pretty grateful that they came and drove off the orcs. So they're down with it. And it would seem that Thingol would be down with it, too. Again, I think that's why the reference to the wide were the countries of Beleriand and many empty and wild. There's room, right? So you'd think he should recognize them. Um, if Morgoth were to be withstood, there was need for the closest of friendship between Thingol and the sons of Feanor. But there isn't from the very beginning because of the curse of Bandos. Because Thingol... Since even before their, uh, their, the full tale of the deeds in Valinor become known, even before Thingol knows. Thingol knows you, you can't, it is, uh, it is, he feels distrust for the sons of Fanor, and he's not wrong to do it. And the distrust towards them, the hostility of Thingol, is expressing, is working out the curse of Mandos. This is what Mandos foretold. This is what Mandos foretold, brought about. To what extent is it what? You know, that's kind of a one of those simultaneous fate and free will issues that we see in Tolkien. Um, but we see Thingol is like the instrument, in a sense, of the curse of Mandos. Which makes sense, given his quasi-divine status, right? His people, the ones on the ground, they're fine. They're totally down with the Feanorians, right? So much better neighbors than the orcs, I can't even tell you, right? Um, and yet, despite that, Thingol is not taken in. Thingol is not... Um, something tells him that this is not going to end well. Okay. This concludes, essentially, the Grey Annals, the part of um, uh, the Sindar mythology portion of the Grey Annals, which Tolkien interrupts at this point in order to write a little essay on the development of the languages, because of course he does. Therefore, whereas the tongue of the Noldor had altered little from the ancient tongue of the Eldar upon the march, and its altering had for the most part come in the making of new words for things old and new, and in the softening and harmonizing of the sounds and patterns of the Quendian tongue to forms that seemed to the Noldor more beautiful, 
The language of the Sindar had changed much, and even in unheeded growth, as a tree may imperceptibly change its shape, as much, maybe, as an unwritten mortal tongue might change in five hundred years or more. It was already ere the rising of the sun, a speech greatly different to the ear from the Noldoran, and after that rising all change was swift, for a while, in the second spring of Arda, very swift indeed. Okay, so what are we getting here? The, First of all, let me uh, contextualize my own interest in these passages. I am not, for those of you who are really, who share Tolkien's enthusiasm for his invented languages, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a disappointment to you, as I have always felt that I would have been a disappointment to Tolkien with the comparative insufficiency of my enthusiasm about his invented languages. Um for which I can't even apologize. It's just who I am. But um, I share many interests with Tolkien. Philology just isn't one of them. And I've come to peace with that. But anyhow, <laughs> so I'm not going to be focusing on the language. What I'm really interested in here is what does this excursus about the language show us about the current state of his imagination and of his world building about the Noldor and the Sindar themselves. What's the story here? We know that, um, you know, he has said, and we have seen fairly clearly uh, in some of his early writings, especially in the Hlamas and a bunch of that 1937 stuff that we talked about before while reading The Shaping of Middle-Earth and The Lost Road together. But, um, uh, but in any case, um, we've seen that his stories originated in philological imagination, um, so what is the status of the story now, right? How is he, uh, what does his talk about their languages and the, the development of the languages tell us about the story? So first, the tongue of the Noldor had altered little from the ancient, so the, the, the languages of the Noldor and the Sindar had grown apart. Why? Why and how had they grown apart? And what he insists on here, it's not the Noldor that primarily changed. Um, he says, the, the tongue of the Noldor had altered little from the ancient tongue of the Eldar upon the march, which was the, the root language of them all. Right there they were, all marching together-ish, more or less, marching, right, um, vaguely near each other, um, all starting with the same language. At Quithian, they were all speaking the same language, Right? Now they've been apart for a long time and they come back together and find their languages have drifted apart. The tongue of the Noldor had altered little. The language of the Sindar had changed much. Okay, so it's the, it's Sindarin that has changed more than Quenya. But um, he does give this um, little side note on the Noldorin language. It's not that it hadn't changed at all. It had changed some. How had it changed? Its altering had, for the most part, come in the making of new words for things old and new, and in the softening and harmonizing of the sounds and patterns of the Quendian tongue to forms that seemed to the Noldor more beautiful. So, why do the Noldor, why does the language of the Noldor, why does Quenya, in the form in which the Noldor speak it when they return to Middle-earth, why does it differ at all? Why aren't they speaking exactly the same language? as when they were marching across Middle-earth? And the answer is artistry. 
right? Artistic, the artistic temperament of the Noldor. So this is the thing that, one of the things that we learn about the Noldor. They've changed their language on purpose. They've made new words. They've softened and harmonized the sounds and patterns of the Quendian tongues to make it more beautiful. They've improved their language deliberately, artistically. So the Noldor, their language hadn't changed much, but where it had changed, it changed deliberately and artistically. But what about the Sindar? Their language had changed much more. Why? Even in the unheeded growth, as a tree may imperceptibly change its shape. As much, maybe, as an unwritten mortal tongue might change in 500 years or more. So, think back to... Um, well, you remember our Mythgard Academy uh, discussion of uh, Sir Thomas Mowry, right? We read Sir Thomas Mowry in Middle English together, all 700 pages of him. Um, that's about 500 years ago. Now, keep in mind, that's a written tongue. So it's changed way less than it would have done had it been an unwritten mortal tongue, right? Which does not have written records to... I, like, our tongue has changed way less than it might have done because, you know, we read... We've been reading all of these printed books that have been around for hundreds of years, right? Um, like, we still read Shakespeare, we still read Samuel Johnson. You know, we still read, um, uh, well, here in America, we still read sometimes people like uh, Emerson or Thoreau, right? Um, we still read Jane Austen and uh, Louisa May Alcott. Um, so, therefore, our language has changed less than it might have done in the last 500 years. Um, but, yes, James, I do think that the... Um, the most, the simplest way to characterize the difference between the change in Quenya and the change in Sindarin is that, is that the Quenya, the changes to Quenya were deliberate and artistic, and the changes to Sindarin were unintentional and spontaneous. Just as a tree may change its shape. Why? When it, as a tree grows, why does a tree change its shape? Why does it, why does, like, why do two, you know, birches that grow, you know, 15 feet away from each other not look identical, right? Why do they have, like, different numbers of branches and, and you know, one might, like, lean a little one way or whatever? Well, because the circumstances, they're responding to their circumstances, right? Um, but over time, those two trees might be very different shapes, right? I mean, I've got a birch tree in my backyard that's growing at like a, <laughs> like a, I don't know, 60 degree angle, right? Trying to get out and reach the sun uh, from where these taller trees are uh, overshadowing it. Um, that looks pretty different from some of the other birches that, that are, uh, at, you know, out near my backyard. Um, uh, so yeah, like that's, that's the kind, that's the way that Sindar grew and changed. Unheeded growth, right? Um, it's an imperceptible change. It's over much more time. It's been more than 500 years, right? But, um, so notice, by comparing it to an unwritten mortal tongue in 500 years, he is saying it changes less than mortal tongues change, right? 
Um, uh, yeah, Feanaro, I don't know the answer to that. Do we think that the Vanyar changed their language as well, right? The, the tongue, ancient tongue of the Eldar on, upon the march. Or is this a Nolar thing that they can't resist the urge to create and beautify all things around them? Um, I do not know. I, on the one hand, I suspect that um, we are supposed to associate this with the Noldor specifically, not just the elves of Valinor in general, compared to the Sindar. Um, it's the Noldor specifically in the Sindar that are being contrasted here. So I do think that this emphasis on, um, you know, the, making it more beautiful, harmonizing the sounds and making new words is supposed to be a Noldoran kind of th- kind of thing, right? A Noldoran kind of approach. But at the same time, Feanara, I can't imagine the Vanyar don't, haven't changed their language at all we're told they're the poets, right? The music of words. They're, you know, uh, they're, they're doing rap songs up there in, uh, uh, you know, on Oyelase. So presumably their language has been adapted uh, to the music of, of, of words that they're using. So um, anyway, I can't imagine it hasn't changed, but, I think pre- presumably not in the same ways. I do think that those are these are Noldor specific. That's my reading of it anyway. That these are Noldor specific that were um, uh, uh, changes that we're getting here. Does this mean that like the Noldor language is better? That like is this like it could sound like it, this? This you could read this paragraph as sort of making the Sindar sound kind of second class, right? I mean, here's the Noldor with this sophisticated refinement of their language, and there's the Sindar language just growing wild like weeds, would be one way to take this, potentially. And therefore suggesting a kind of invidious comparison between the polished and, um, uh, you know, thoughtful, creative, artistic, intellectual Noldor, and the, you know, uh, simple, unwashed Sindar, right, running wild uh, there in Beleriand. But I do not believe... I be- So, such a distinction, uh, uh, drawing such a distinction would be understandable, but I think it would be wrong. Um, in particular, remember what we're just transitioning from. We're just transitioning from this mythological account of the Sindar them think of the um, the unheeded growth of the language of the Sindar in the context of the kind of thing we were just looking at before. Like in the context of in those days the elves walked, the rivers flowed, and the stars shone, and the night flowers gave forth their scents. Remember the their relationship, their living in Beleriand is this natural expression, right? I think it just is likely to see the Sindar and their, the unheeded growth of their language as the natural, the good, um, the ideal, whereas the artificial, uh, the self-consciously crafted, 
and artistic language of the Noldor could have a negative slant. Now, I don't think we have to choose one and diss the other one necessarily, right? But I'm saying if you're going to do that, I think you could as easily make a case that the spontaneous growth of the language of the Sindar is is perhaps even more wholesome uh, than the other. I don't think this paragraph is asking us to choose one and diss the other one. Um, But I do think that there is a tendency in Silmarillion readers especially when lacking the kind of contextualization that the Grey Annals has been giving us, um, lacking that context, it does become easy, even subconsciously, to think of the Sindar as like second-class citizens, right? To the Noldor, right? Just They're just lesser than the Noldor. Less sophisticated, less intelligent, less artistic. Um, their culture, a lesser culture. Um, and I... I think that what we have read in the Grey Annals up to this point should lead us to uh, resist that thinking a little bit. Um, more on the language and the Noldor. Now, this change of tongue among the Noldor took place for many divers' reasons. First, that though the Sindar were not numerous, they far outnumbered the hosts of Feanor and Fingolfin, such as in the end survived their, their dreadful journeys and reached Beleriand. Secondly, and no less, that the Noldor, having forsaken among themselves, began to be subject to change undesigned, while they were yet upon the march, and at the rising of the sun this change became swift, and the change in their daily tongue was such that, whether by reason of the like clime and soil, and the like fortunes, whether by intercourse and mingling of blood, it changed in the same ways as did the Sindarin, and the two tongues grew towards one another. Thus it came that words taken from Noldoran into Teleran entered not in the true forms of high speech, but as it were altered and fitted to the character of the tongue of Beleriand. Thirdly, because after the death of Theonor, the overlordship of the exiles, as shall be recounted, passed to Fingolfin, and he being of other mood than Theonor, acknowledged the high kingship of Thingol and, Men- and Menegroth, being indeed greatly in awe of that king. Mightiest of the Eldar, save Feanor only, and of Melian no less. But though Elu Thingol, great in memory, could recall the tongue of the Eldar as it had been ere the ere riding from Finway's camp, he heard the bur- uh, Sorry. Let me, let me try to parse that syntax one more time. But though Elu Thingol, great in memory, could recall the tongue of the Eldar as it had been riding from Finway's camp, he heard the birds of Nan Elmoth. In Doriath, the Sindarin tongue alone was spoken, and all must learn it who would have dealings with the king. Whew. Lot here. Okay. There are three reasons that after the arrival of... So that when the Noldor arrive in Beleriand, their language begins to change and to change rapidly. And there are three reasons for this. One, although the Sindar are not numerous, they far outnumber the hosts of Feanor and Fingolfin. There are just way more Sindar than Noldor. And so, therefore, there is... um, um, It is natural just for demographic reasons that when these two languages come together, the, when, you know, when the Quenya speakers and the Sindarin speakers come together, the Sindarin speakers outnumber the Quenya speakers so much that 
if there's going to be change, it's going to tend to be in that direction. This is just talking thinking as a philologist. You'll remember if you did, I believe it's the Lost Road um, discussion with us in the Mythgard Academy, you will remember that in the Hlamas, Tolkien was fascinated by various combinations of this phenomenon. Of um, He wasn't just... Tolkien didn't just invent languages. Like, I'm going to invent a language. That was fun. I think I'll invent another language, right? No. Tolkien was doing... Um, like, you've heard of fantasy football? This is fantasy philology, right? Like, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to first invent a language, and then I am going to imagine applying the laws of, you know, the linguistic laws of philology. I'm going to imagine how that language would change over time. Then I'm going to complicate that by imagining the people who speak that undergoing different kind of cultural circumstances over time, which would influence the change of that language in various directions. Ooh, wait, and then I'm going to split, I'm going to subdivide them in various ways and then have each one of those separate populations undergo different kinds of cultural circumstances and speculate on how those languages would then change differently in those environments. But wait, there's more. Then I can recombine some of those populations and look at how these now two separate languages that have grown apart are going to influence each other when they re-encounter each other in a similar geographic environment, right? That is like... Um, you know, invented language cubed, right? Like this is the ultimate adventure in, in, uh, in, in invented language. Um, that's where the stories of the Silmarillion came from, right? All of the stories of the Silmarillion, all the basic structure of the history of the first age of Middle-earth comes from all of those different cultural and cultural inter like division and interaction scenarios that he was playing with in his language, in his, you know, fantasy philology game, his one player fantasy philology game uh, that he was playing in his early days and continued to play throughout his entire life. Um, so that first example, that first reason why the change uh, of the tongue among the older took, took place is just a reference to that. Right. And, and telling you one of the factors. Because again, this is like, again, it's another one of these like sub-scenarios, right? What if the two populations meet each other, but one of them is way more populous than the other? How would that influence the growth and development of their two languages respectively? Ooh, and let's imagine, what's the political situation, right? What if, oh, yeah, well, okay, so the one language group has this central high king who's really impressive, right? And in Doriath, the Sindarin tongue alone was spoken, so there's functionally no interchange, right, between Quenya and Sindarin within Doriath, and Doriath is sort of normative for Sindarin as a whole, so okay, right, let's let's, let's play with that, right? Um, notice the second point that he makes is he's like, keep in mind the Noldor are now subject to change. This is something that is so easy to overlook when reading the published Silmarillion. That Tolkien imagined there is something in the air 
probably, he mentions this several times, of Middle-earth. Like, it's literally like something that is in the in the, like it's a, it's like a gaseous thing. <laughs> like it's something in the air, literally in the air that they breathe in Middle Earth, which accelerates change, right? Which accelerates change. Um, so when the Noldor come across, they start changing. They start changing spontaneously in ways that they never changed spontaneously before. It's almost like they're being taken out of some kind of stasis. It's a radical effect. Notice it starts setting in while they're still on the march. Like they don't even get to Beleriand before they've like, they've been changing in ways that they don't even understand. And then the sun rises, changes it again. Now the change becomes even more swift. And, uh, and, and their two tongues are growing towards one another. So now notice how this gives us a new context on the previous observation, how the Noldor language had changed very little, and the Sindar language had changed a lot and spontaneously? Well, of course it did. They've been living in Middle-earth here this whole time. And once again, it offers this sort of recontextualization. It's not... It becomes clearly not a sign of superiority or anything that the Noldor language didn't change except artistically. It becomes a sign that they've been put in formaldehyde for this whole time. Again, it's... I think, evidence of the unnaturalness of the removal of the elves from Middle-earth. That's not how they were supposed to be. They've been... They've been in this sort of cultural stagnation in Valinor. And now they get back to Middle-earth and now things start humming. Now they're living in this linguistically organic situation, suddenly. And guess what happens? Their language starts spontaneously changing all over the place, like it never did over in Valinor. Now, again, I don't want to use images like formaldehyde and just suggest that Valinor was, a, you know, was horrible and, uh, you know, the Valor were evil uh, to have done it. Um, but, um, but there's an element of that here, that, the, that there is a kind of stagnation that I, that seems to be not at least especially within the context remember of the gray annals who are like Beleriand this this was it right the golden age under king thingol that d- d- didn't get any better right it's all downhill Fa- the fanorians come and it's going to be all downhill from there um uh yes evil dr cannon you are completely right that the stagnation in valinor is parallel to the preservation provided by the the three rings the elvish rings of power which were also a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yes, yes. Um, okay, and the third point that he makes. Um, the other reason why Sindor, Sindar was, Sindarin was like the, Sindor is like the combination of Noldor and Sindar, isn't it? Uh, Sindarin became, in a sense, the dominant language. That is, Quenya changed more to be like Sindarin than Sindarin was influenced by Quenya. And the third reason for this is because of Fingolfin's respect for Thingol. The high... that Fingolfin acknowledged the high kingship of Thingol and Menegroth. If that didn't blow your hair back, I don't know anything in the annals so far that should have, Right? Who Fingolfin acknowledged the high kingship of Thingol? Yikes! And was greatly in awe of Thingol? Mightiest of all the Eldar save Feanor only? 
Yowza! <laughs> That's a huge statement right there, right? It acknowledges Fanor, Fanor, you know, is still the superlative superlative of all of the elves, right? But Thingol is greatest. And by the way, I believe that he means prior to his upgrade. Like, Elway on the journey, right? So there's Elway and Finway hanging out, right? When Elway and Finway were hanging out on the journey across Middle-earth, Elway was at that point the mightiest of the Eldar, save Feanor only. Like, it was Elway's records that Feanor was breaking when he was born in Valinor, right? But I think that that is pre-apotheosis Thingol, who was the greatest, the mightiest of the Eldar, say Feanor only. Um, but through Elu Thingol, great in... Though, but this sentence, I just can't read this sentence successfully. Although, I'm just going to summarize. Although Thingol, whose memory was great... It's not just that he's great in memory, like, we remember that he was great. I think he, in, he, he has an awesome memory, because he's Thingol, for crying out loud. He's great in memory. He has a great memory. He, 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 he remembers the language that he spoke. He, he re remembers, he can still speak in his Quivienan accent, right? He knows how the elves spoke from the beginning. And up to that day he heard those nightingales, right? But despite this fact, despite the fact that Eluthingol, great in memory, remembers full well the original language spoken in Quivienin, in Doriath, at the center of his power, where, he, where his power rests, they speak Sindarin. This free-flowing spontaneously changing language. In other words, Doriath, like, Thingol's cool with it. He could stop it if he wanted to. He could, he, again, he, he could teach them all to talk like they did at Quivianen. But he doesn't. Their language grows and changes, just like elves walk and rivers flow and stars shine. That, I think, is how it's supposed to be. But he is not learning Quenya, right? He's not allowing Quenya to be spoken in his court, even prior to. No, there's no ban in place here. This is not in retribution or anything. This is just um, who he is, what he's like. Um, okay. Now, another note, getting close to the question with which we began near the end of the excursus on the language. But these histories were made after the last battle and the end of the Elder Days. And therefore, they were made in the tongue of the remnant of the elves as it then was, ere it passed, away, ere it passed again into the West. And the names of those that they record and of the places that are remembered have for the most part that form which they had in the spoken speech at the last. Here ends that part which was drawn mainly from the Grey Annals, and there follows matter drawn in brief from the Quentin Ulderinwa, and mingled with the traditions of Doriath. Okay, so the very last paragraph, the very last note on the languages, talks about the language that we cannot see. 
which is the language from which the text we're currently reading has been translated, right? These histories, what language are the annals themselves written in? That we're reading an, a, a, a very, a, you know, a, a, an English translation for which we should be grateful. What language were the annals written in? We have to remember that these histories, the textual history of the gray annals themselves, is that they're made at the end of the Elder Days, after the last battle. And therefore, like, in Toleresia, that means, after the end of the Elder Days. And therefore they were made in the remnant of the, the tongue of the remnant of the elves as it then was. So all of this uh, influence of Quenya and Sindarin, like the coexistence of Quenya and Sindarin and the establishment of Sindarin as sort of the dominant tongue and the dominantly influencing of the other one tongue, though there's some preservation of Quenya, of course. Um, that tongue, when you get at the end of the day, at the end of the elder days, in fact, um, with all of the remnant of this, all of them, there aren't even that many, right? With the few survivors of the Noldor and the few survivors of the Sindar, who are finally all huddling on the shores of the Bay of Balar, which, huh, come to think of it, is kind of the cradle of Beleriand from the beginning, isn't it? But anyway, there they are, huddling there, and then the War of Wrath happens around them, fortunately, and Beleriand sinks into the ocean, which is uncomfortable, but then they go back to Toleresia, right? So... After all, this is the language in which it's all written. So it's it's end of first age, Cinderin combined with Noldor, like combined with Quenya, right? Um, the names of those that they record and of the places that are remembered have for the most part that form which they had spoken in the speech at the last. This is why, of course, we're getting all those... Quenya names. Remember we talked about that? Like Quenya, like Ase, right? Instead of Balar and things like, oh, it's, you know, one of the things we talked about before. Um, this is why. Because who's writing the histories? Who's been writing this stuff down? Well, they're, they're Noldor around, right? We've got survivors from Gondolin, survivors from Nargothrond. Um, so many of these seem to be the names that were primarily remembered. Um, the names that everybody adopted. It's all part of that complicated interaction between um, uh, between the um, you know, the two peoples as the elder days went on and the survivors of all of them um, you know, all, all get crammed together in a, in a narrow space. Okay, wait, so what book are we reading? Here ends that part which was drawn mainly from the Grey Annals. Okay, wait, so we're not reading the Grey Annals. Notice that? Turns out we've not been reading the Grey Annals at all. Christopher Tolkien called it the Grey Annals. I mean, like, in the War of the Jewels, he called it the Grey Annals, right? But it's not the Grey Annals. What we're reading is the are the Annals of Beleriand... And the first part of the Annals of Beleriand are primarily drawn from the Grey Annals. So the Grey Annals is a separate book. That's like the Sindar book. 
And this part of the Annals of Beleriand has been heavily influenced by that, right? So it's been drawn most from the Grey Annals. But there is another source from which they are drawing in order to write the rest of the Annals of Beleriand, because, of course, as you know, we are not done when we get to this point. But we are done primarily drawing from the Grey Annals. So the Sindarin framework is finished chronologically at this point. This is not just a Tolkien didn't finish it kind of deal, or at least he's, you know, retconning it in this particular way. The fr- he's going to continue the Annals of Beleriand, but he's not going to continue the Sindar thing. Why? Well, because he wants to tell those Noldor stories too. He doesn't just want to give the Sindar perspective all the way through, because that would not really allow him to do justice to a bunch of the other stories that he wants to tell. I mean, like, for instance, um, it might be kind of interesting to imagine, oh, the story of the Nirnaith Arnoidiad, told only from the Sindar in perspective, right? Um, reflections of Beleg and Mablung, eyewitnesses, right? Um you know, the sort of uh, uh, battlefield reporters of the Sindar there. Um, I mean, that might be really kind of interesting, but that's not the story that he had in mind. And um, what do we know of the fall of Gondolin? Anyway, so he's not going to give us the rest of the Elder Days in in this form of uh, Sindar-focused. No, instead he's going to draw, in brief... From the Quenta Noldorinwa. So, with the Annals over here and the Quenta over there, now the Quenta is being used as a source for the rest of the Annals, mingled with the traditions of Dora. So, there's going to be some Sindar stuff in there too, but it's not going to be differentiated anymore. We're not going to we're not getting this pure Sindar worldview anymore for the whole rest of it, even though some Sindar stuff's going to be in there. But the Quentin Alderinwa is now a source. So is he planning to give us the Quentin Alderinwa still also? Despite the fact that it's the primary source of the whole rest of the Annals of Beleriand? Or is he in fact, or does it suggest that he is in fact planning to have the completed Annals of Beleriand supplant the Quentin? No need for the Quenta anymore. Because we're, we're putting all that in the annals. Is that what's happening here? Kind of sounds, this passage makes it sound like that might indeed be the plan. Um, okay. Um, now, I'm jumping ahead a little bit because I wanted to get, because this is another interesting passage that bears on this. This is uh, the beginning of the story of Beren and Luthien. Um, So I'm skipping ahead like 80 paragraphs here. But um, I think you'll see why. The forest of Dorthonian rose southward into mountainous moors. There lay a lake, Tarn Iluin, in the east of those highlands, and wild heaths were about it. And all that land was pathless and untamed, for even in the days of the long peace none had dwelt there. But the waters of Tarn Iluin were held in reverence, for they were clear and blue by day and by night. Sorry. For they were clear and blue by day, and by night were a mirror for the stars. Melian herself, it was said, had hallowed that water in days of old. 
Thither Barahir, Melian herself, can you believe it? Thither Barahir and his outlaws withdrew, and there made their lair, and Morgoth could not discover it. Well, yeah, protected by the blessing of Melian, right? Even from the old days. It was probably, you know, um, back in, back, uh, you know, when she was a free agent, roaming around, blessing things in Middle-earth before she, you know, settled down and got hitched. Okay, but the rumor of the deeds of Barahir and his twelve men went far and wide, and enheartened those that were under the thraldom of Morgoth, and he therefore commanded Sauron to find and destroy the rebels speedily. Elsewhere, in the Quenta, and the Lay of Lathian, is much told of this, and how Sauron ensnared Gorlim by a phantom of his wife Iwanel, and tormented him and cozened him, so that he betrayed the hidings of Barahir. Thus at last the outlaws were surrounded and all slain, save Beren, son of Barahir. For Barahir, his father, had sent him on a perilous errand to spy upon the ways of the enemy, and he was far afield when the lair was taken, and returned only to find the bodies of the slain. Okay. Number one question. What does this tell us about the textual status of the annals? So we're still reading the annals. It's, it's not the gray annals section anymore, right? But we're still reading the annals of Beleriand. Now the part that's drawn from the Quenta Noldorinwa, and notice the textual reference. Elsewhere in the Quenta and the Lay of Lathian is much told of this. And how Sauron did this, and how... And like Notice the and how part of that sentence uh, prompts him to do a little summary. He's going to allude to the other thing, but he's not going to tell the whole story. He's not going to tell the whole story of Gorlim. I'm not going to get, like, dialogue, the, you know, of, of, of Gorlim and the whole story of how he gets captured and interrogated and then killed and then his shades showing up and meeting Baron and, you know, we don't get any of that detail, right? We just get the... Um, we just get the overview. And he excuses himself from telling the whole story of the betrayal of Barahir and his hidings. He excuses himself by saying, it's okay, you can go read this in the Quenta and the Lay of Lathian. And that's interesting. That is pointing, in my opinion, in quite the opposite direction of that previous passage we just read where he said, the annals that I'm going to be giving you are drawn primarily from the Quenta Nildurinma. Right? So the, the Quenta, that, you know, plot summary thing, I'm going to, you don't need to read that because I'm going to, like, you're going to get it in the annals. Is one way of, again, suggesting maybe we're not even going to do the Quenta anymore here. We're totally doing the Quenta still. This suggests that the Quenta, though it may be a source for the annals, is nevertheless in itself a quite different um, a quite different uh, kind of story. And notice there are two different sources. If you want to read the whole story of Gorlim's betrayal of Barahir's hidings, you could either read the story in the Quenta which is obviously fuller than this, as this is just a little hint at it, right? Or you can read it in the Lay of Lathian, which we happen to know is a, f a long narrative poem. 
So if you would like to read it in verse, you could read it in the way of Lathian. If you would like to read a fuller prose account, you can go to the Quinta. And so that, by process of elimination, seems to tell us something about the ambitions of the annals, right? And perhaps to suggest, although the annals have been expanding and getting more and more detailed, um, there are some parts of the annals, and I didn't, you know, give these exact... I didn't put these on a slide, right? But you may remember some of the pages... Um, in the annals, I'm trying to find a good example off the top of my head. Oh, yeah, here's one. Pages that look... Let me see if I can make sure to hold it up to the camera properly. Yeah. Pages that look like this, right? That is a, a, a row, a, you know, a, a line of um, years with one single sentence, right? These are around the year 423. Hador's folk entered Dorloman. Baragund, son of Bregala, son of Beor, was born. Belagund, his brother, was born. These are each one in separate years, right, with a couple of years falling between them. Hundor, son of Haleth, wedded Glorwindel, daughter of Hador. That's kind of how I expect an annal to read, right? Here's like the thing of historical note that happened in this year. Kind of like the Tale of Years, right, in Appendix B of The Lord of the Rings. That's what I expect to find in an annal, right? But of course, the annals have been expanding and been getting more narrative and dialogue and stuff like that. We're getting like the whole story. But nevertheless, here, he seems to suggest that the Quenta is still, like, the place to go to get the full prose version of the story. Maybe not like that. It's not like the totally unexpurgated version, right? Um, but you, if you want the full prose story, read the Quenta. If you, want, if you want that in verse, read the Lay of Lathian, right? And so, therefore, I, I think... Now, he doesn't... Tolkien doesn't seem to be totally adhering to that. As I think we'll see in the story of Turin, um, you know, we'll see how much is he leaving for the Quenta in the story of Turin as we get to that, right? But in any case, conceptually here, this seems to be a way to understand it. So maybe maybe the Quenta, instead of being originally the Quenta was like a, a sort of an, a, 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 a high up, like a a historical overview from 20,000 feet, right? Looking down upon, like, the developments of history, right? But maybe that's not what the Quenya is going to become. Maybe the Quenta... Sorry, not the Quenya, the Quenta. Maybe the Quenta is going to become, like, the collection of fuller stories. In fact, more like the way that Christopher Tolkien structures the Quenta Silmarillion in the published Silmarillion, right? Not just a historical narrative overviewing stage by stage, but like a chapter. Here is the tale of Baron and Luthien. A good, meaty prose version of the story of Baron and Luthien. Here is a good, meaty prose version of the story of Turin Turinbar. Here is a good, meaty prose version of the story of the Dagor Bragalach. Right? That all that that kind of thing. That the Quenta is supposed to be like the deeper dive, the more immersive narrative, the fuller recounting of the individual story. Whereas the annals are designed to keep it all together, to keep you sh seeing the overall frame, uh, following the drive of history. As I say, Tolkien doesn't seem to keep to this division, 
because he keeps getting carried away, right? He starts off telling what might sound at first like one of those brief entries, and then it blows up, right? Um, so, yeah. None of these schemas, I think, are clearly consistent in Tolkien's mind yet. But we're getting some glimpses of maybe what Tolkien thought he was doing uh, in the annals. Let's look. We still have a few minutes. Let's look at a few interesting snippets out of the later non-gray annals. The non-gray annals. Um, let's talk about the fall of man. Uh, so we're going back now again about 80, uh, 80 paragraphs prior to the one I was just reading from. Uh, the He has just described how the vigilance of the Eldar in the north, in the frozen north, is insufficient to keep orc spies out of the land. Nor himself, and he, and he would go. Indeed, we learn now in Eresia, in Eresia from the Valar, though our kin that dwell still in Amman through... My goodness, I'm reading horribly tonight. Let me try again. Indeed, we learn now in Eresia from the Valar, through our kin that dwell still in Amman, that after Dagor knew in Giliath, Melkor was so long in assailing the Eldar with strength, for he himself had departed from Angband for the last time. Even as before at the awakening of the Quendi, his spies were watchful, and tidings soon came to him of the arising of men. This seemed to him so great a matter that secretly under shadow he went forth into Middle-earth, leaving the command of the war to Sauron his lieutenant. Of his dealings with men, the Eldar knew not at that time, and know little now, for neither the Valar nor men have spoken to them clearly of these things. But that, but that some darkness lay upon the hearts of men, as the shadow of the kinslaying and the doom of Mandos lay upon the Noldor, the Eldar perceived clearly, even in the fair folk of the elf friends that they first knew, to corrupt or destroy whatsoever arose new and fair was ever the chief desire of Morgoth. But as regards the Eldar, doubtless he had this purpose also in his errand, by fear and lies, to make men their foes, and bring them up out of the east against Beleriand. But this design was slow to ripen, and was never wholly achieved, for men, it is said, were at first very few in number, whereas Morgoth grew afraid of the tidings of the growing power and union of the Eldar, and came back to Angband, leaving behind at that time but few servants, and those of less might and cunning. Certain it is, that at this time, which was the time of his return, if the aforesaid account be true, as we must believe, Morgoth began a new evil desiring above all to sow fear and disunion among the Eldar in Beleriand. He now bade the Orkor to take alive any of the Eldar that they could and bring them bound to Angband. Okay. Um, bunch of things here. We can't, we don't have enough time to talk in detail about all of them. Um, this passage is significant, if only because, as Christopher points out in one of his notes to this, um, this is the first time in all of his writings that Tolkien said, wrote anything about the fall of man. Um, this passage, which has Melkor himself going off into the east to do something to corrupt men and bring them under his own power. Um, 
he had only alluded to the lack of information from the elves about why there seemed to be some darkness, a darkness like that of original sin upon human beings. Um, but he had, he, he had never written anything about it. This is the first thing he's ever written about that. You will remember we read a lot more about this uh, when we were reading Morgoth's Ring, and in particular the Athrabeth, and then in particular the... Um, uh, the uh, the tale of Adonel, right? Um, where he's writing about it much, much more explicitly. However, that was written after this. This is the beginning of that of that stuff. Um, exactly. Yes. The uh, the the account in the Athrabeth of uh, of Andreth comes from here. Fanaro. Exactly. Exactly. Um, oh, this is like the seed. The seed of that. Um, Notice another thing, though. The taking of prisoners, the, uh, the idea that he took prisoners and lay upon them what in the Book of Lost Tales was delightfully called the spell of bottomless dread, um, though that phrase isn't used here. Um, he, that, that's an old idea. That's a Book of Lost Tales idea. In fact, that is the premise of the story of the fall of Gondolin, the first of the stories that he wrote about the Elder Days. So there, there's a sense in which the tormenting and uh, twisting of elf captives by Morgoth and like oppression of elf captives in Angband is like the initial premise of all of the Middle-earth stories. Like it's the very, very first concept from which all of his Middle-earth stories began, in a sense, right? Or it's at least like the, the opening state of, the, of that. Um, and yet, he here says, essentially chronologically, we know what he did with the elves at Quivianen. He captured some and twisted them into the Orkor, probably. Again, origin of orcs issues that we discussed in Morgoth's Ring. But that's the origin of that theory, right? Um, at the very least, he inspired them with fear, and he took some of them and tortured them and killed them and created fear in the rest of them. Now, when humans show up, he has a better plan. Now he's going to go, not as dark hunter, to inspire fear among them. He is now going to come as tempter and god and try to bring them to worship him. That's what he does with humans. And then he comes back from that and is like, hey, that worked a treat. I'm going to try this with the elves, too. Let's see what can be done, even at this late day. Right? I'm going to catch me some elves, and I'm going to lay the bottomless whammy on them. Right? And then I'm going to send them out, and they'll be my, like, slaves, and they'll, it, it'll, they'll be, like, you know, my mind will still dwell upon them, and they'll, like, do all manner of mischief, and they'll all hate and distrust each other, and it'll be great. It's not going to bring a state of original sin to the elves. Too late in the day for that, but he can make something work. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Batman is wondering uh, about the chronology of orcs being created since... Uh, yeah. Um, don't we all wonder? Right? Um, Tolkien was uh, first on the list of wondering about that. 
Um, and I'm not going to go back to all that until he does. And, uh, you know, until it comes up in the War of the Jewels, we're not going to talk about that again here. But yeah, yeah, let me just say, yes, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, but last thing, did you catch what we learned at the very beginning of that first paragraph? Um, I always love any of these textual notes that we receive. Pay close attention to these because they're super fun. Indeed, we, who's we? Who's speaking? The author of the Annals of Beleriand. Indeed, we learn now in Erisea from the Valar, through our kin that still dwell in Amman, that this thing happened. So we are writing this in, er in Erisea, confirmed, right? He implied that before, after the war and everything had happened, right? So... This is definitely being composed in Toleresia and is now being influenced by stories, I was about to say direct from the Valar, indirect from the Valar, right? At one remove. So the elves, whether they be Teleri, Noldor, maybe even Vanyar, um, who are making the trip, Right, who come to Toleresia to visit? They bring stories. The Valar they they've been talking with the Valar about this stuff, and so the Valar gave them the skinny about this. The elves had no idea. The elves in Beleriand had no way of accessing any information about what on earth Melkor might have been up to, way in the east of Middle Earth. Right? They have. Not, how could they possibly even suspect where he's gone or what he's done? But the Valar, they were watching. Omo knows where he went, right? Not going to be a mystery to him. So, and they told the elves in Amman, and the elves in Amman told them. So we're now getting this uh, little um, influence there, right? Um, yeah. Okay, one more quick one, and then we'll stop. It's about the humans, too. A little follow-up there. For the most part, the time of the Siege of Angband was a time of gladness. And the earth had peace under the new light, while the swords of the Noldor restrained the malice of Morgoth, and his thought being bent on their ruin, he gave the less heed to aught else in Middle-earth. In this time, therefore, men waxed and multiplied, and they had converse with the dark elves of the Eastlands, changed to, and among them were some that had converse with the elves of Middle-earth. Notice the change there. By the way, whenever he shows us the change, whenever he shows us Tolkien writing something and then crossing it out and writing something else instead, I love that. It's my, my favorite thing, right? Um, because it gives you just a little hint. It's not always transparent. You know, it's, it's, you know sometimes we, we, we may be wrong um, in our interpretation of that. But I can't forbear uh, to guess at what we can see of the drift of Tolkien's mind here. So n notice the change. He first says, in this time, men waxed and multiplied, and they had converse with the Dark Elves. And then he changed. What did he change? He changed how many of them. He changed that to, and among them were some that had converse with the Elves of Middle-earth and learned much, much of them. Right? So the very first impulse he had was, he was like, oh yeah, men, Dark Elves, used to hang out all the time. And he's like, no, that's not how it was. There are some among them who had converse. It makes it sound like not just that a minority of the elves or the, of the humans interacted with the Avari, certainly that, but it's like, um, 
It's almost like there are individuals among them who might have wandered off in Medivari and then come back and told stories about it, right? Rather than any kind of broader, the kind of broad cultural interaction that he first suggests with they, meaning men as a whole, had converse with the Dark Elves. He's like, no, 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 it's not quite like that. It's better to say among them were some that had converse with the elves. Kind of like among the hobbits are some that had converse with the elves. A couple, right? Um, but uh, not Shire culture as a whole. That seems to be the kind, to, seems to me anyway, to be the kind of difference there. And then we've got, um, here's another passage. He's going to change. He's about to change this. But first he writes, from them it is said that they took the first blessings, that is, uh, from the from the Avari, from them it is said that they took the first beginnings of the many tongues of men. Thus they heard rumor of the blessed realms, seek, that is, Tolkien wrote realms, plural, Christopher is pointing out, it's not Christopher's mistake. Thus they heard rumor of the blessed realms of the West and of the powers that dwelt there. And many of the fathers of men, the Atanatari, in their wanderings moved ever westward. Okay, so that passage is changed. So he's going to strike out that, and he's going to say this instead. From them it is said, the Avari, remember, that they took the first beginnings of the western tongues of men. And from them also they heard rumor of the blessed realms of the west and the powers of light that dwelt there. Therefore many of the fathers of men, the Atanatari, in their wanderings moved ever westward, fleeing from the darkness that had ensnared them. For these elf friends were men that had repented and rebelled against the dark power, and were cruelly hunted and oppressed by those that worshipped it and its servants. Okay, one more. Just a, just a couple points here. Not another slide. I mean, I, I, one, one, one or maybe two more points. So what's the change? What does he change there in that passage? Um, notice the first major change that he makes from them, the Avari, it is said that they took the first beginnings of the western tongues of men. Not, not um, from them it is said that they took the first beginnings of the many tongues of men. His very first impulse was to say that human language was rooted in the Avari. From a philological standpoint, that's an attractive idea. To say, okay, at the root of the linguist of the human linguistic tree is the language of the Avari. That's where they start from. And then it branches out from there. So again, like thinking philologically, that's an attractive kind of idea. And that seems to be the idea that he began with. Indeed, he said something similar, if I recall, in the Lamas. Um, but then he, I think, realizes, but on the ground, that doesn't make much sense. Especially with the change that he just made about, like, only some among them had converse with the elves of Middle-earth. So what were the rest doing in the meantime? Right? Are we imagining this large group, this large human civilization in which no language at all, who are just, like, grunting at each other and knocking stones together until, like, the few people who had wandered off and hung out with the elves briefly come back and they're like, Hey, guys! Language! Right. I, I, I met this elf. He taught me how to speak. You have no idea what I'm saying right now, but I'm going to teach you this language and trust me, you're going to love it. Right. Like it's awkward. It's weird to actually imagine that in that kind of a context. Right. So he, he, he doesn't make it the root of all of their languages. We're not told what the root of the rest of their languages were. What we're told is the Western tongues of men. So those men who come West 
their tongues were rooted in the language of the elves. So presumably they had some other language, wherever the original human languages came from, and we don't know. Um, but wherever they came from, there are some among them who conversed with the elves. And they learned the elves' language. And that language influenced their language very, very much. And in learning the language, they heard all these stories. Oh, yeah, there's like a bunch of blessed realms out to the west, like a whole passel of them, right? Which is kind of true. Of course, there's Amon way out west, across the ocean, right? Never been there myself. But, uh, but also nearby. Beleriand, kind of blessed. Like, it's a, it's a reasonably blessed realm. Melian lives there, right? Go breathe in the joy of Thingol for a while. You might like it, right? It's kind of blessed over there. You know, it's a bit blessed anyway, a touch blessed. So, yeah, I don't think it's a mistake that there's multiple blessed realms. Anyway, go west and you'll find the land of blessing. There are powers and stuff and all kinds of crazy things out there, right? I'm fine here, say the Avari, but, you know, you might be interested. So, the therefore, the drive to go west and the influence on their language both come through the Avari there. And yes, more Athrabeth connections, Batman, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now we get the elf friends, right? Who Even before, they're elf friends even before they get there, right? They are predisposed towards the elves because they were elf friends. The reason they're there in the first place is they're already elf friends with the Avari culturally speaking. That is, they may be descendants of people. The people who actually crossed the mountains may be the descendants of the people who originally hung out with the Avari. But, you know, their stories and their culture has been shaped by that. And those people, the elf friends, are cruelly hunted and oppressed by those that worship the dark power. See what's happening here? Do you... Can you smell the air of Numenor from afar? Look at this. We have faithful elf friends who are being cruelly hunted and oppressed by those that worship the dark power and its servants. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. It's like, um... There are no new stories. Right? He's already invented. Remember, it's happened. The Numenorean explosion in Tolkien's imagination already happened while he was writing The Lord of the Rings, right? He's already invented Adunayak by the time he's writing this in 1950, 51. Um, so um, uh, that stuff is all looming already. He's already got the downfall of Numenor and the uh, Temple of Sauron and all that stuff. Uh, you know, the uh, human sacrifice of the faithful, all of those things are already things that he's written, things that are already in his mind, that are being now anticipated by the backstory of the people of Beor when they first crossed the mountains. And if you're anything like me, reading the published Silmarillion, it never quite felt that way. Exactly. Right? This is not the picture that we're given in the published Silmarillion exactly about that. Um... Yes. Um, and I'll answer this final um, question. Um, 
does this parallel the men to the elves moving westward because they heard of the blessed realms being like the elves moving westward because they heard of Valinor? JJ is asking. Yes, definitely. I mean, the migration is 100% parallel. Well, not 100%. It's parallel. It's parallel. But it's not the same, right? Um, they didn't have any ambassadors. There's no Orame, right? Um, it's a fascinating kind of thing. It seems that the elves are meant to stay. Like, contentment in Middle-earth. Like we saw with the good old Sindar back in the Grey Annals. Um, with Thingol and Melian back in the good old days. When elves were elves and stars were shining. Um, that's what the elves are supposed to be. That is the perfect picture of elfdom. Right? Contented growth with Middle-earth. What do the good guys among the humans do? The good guys among the humans desire something else. The good guys among the humans hear about a land of light and blessing. Hear that there are powers of light living to the West, and they hunger for that, and they seek that out, and they're not content with their land. They're not content with where they are they're seeking out that other thing. And I think that's what humans are supposed to do. Ironically. So it's parallel to it, JJ, but I think there's heavy irony here. Um, remember, elves are the strangers, the foreigners, the people who act like they don't belong here. Um, and that seems to be wrapped up in this desire. And of course... We may remember ahead in the published Silmarillion, remember, we're going to get that conversation where they get to Beleriand and they're like, oh, well, this isn't actually all that. This isn't, turns out this isn't the place that we've been hankering for. And when they get to Numenor eventually, which is pretty sweet, the elves are going to tell them, it's not the Blessed Realm. It's not Amon that you're hankering for either. It's something else. Right, But that hankering is the human condition. And hankering for the power to, to find the powers of light, to find the blessed realms in the West, seems to be a good thing. Okay. All right. Gonna let you go. It's getting late. Uh, thanks, everybody. Man, discussing the War of the Jewels has been just as much fun as I knew it would be. So we'll try to push ahead. As I said, I didn't get anywhere close to Turin Turinbar today. But undaunted, I'll still ask you to read ahead a little bit. Um, let's read, like, the first half of the Turin story. Um, so I'm looking at page 89, up to, but not including, the year 496. Um, so after Turin's first meeting with Glaurung, and before he's attempting... Um, way too late to find Fendulas. So that's where we'll... That's the furthest... So I'm not saying we're... I'm not promising we're going to get there. I'm promising we're definitely not going to go past that. So if you've read through there, you will be 100% confident uh, that you will uh, be on board with everything that we talk about next time. But I should mention, next time will not be next week, because I'm going to be out of town next week. 
Um, but I will be back the week after. So the first Wednesday in March, I'm forgetting which day that's going to be. Maybe it's the 8th or something. <laughs> I can't remember. Maybe March 8th, whichever the Wednesday is there, um, the week after next. March 8th. I am right. Okay. March 8th will be our next uh, our next class. Um, so I won't see you guys next week, but I'll see you guys on the 8th. Uh, and we will uh, we'll see if we can... We'll see how far we can get up to the Turin story uh, next time. Thanks, everybody. And I will talk to you guys uh, in a couple weeks. Bye now.